fascination for creation. How do you turn an idea into income? You have to be resilient if you want to be an entrepreneur. Remember the Times headline was Saul brings colour to the market. Thank you. So, Roger, I first off want to thank you so much for joining the Opportunity Summit. Your glasses actually match the brand of the summit perfectly. So we're clearly on brand together. And the first question I'd like to ask you, Roger, is, you know, as one of the founders of Mulberry, we'll get into that story, but um, how has fashion changed since you started? Oh, that's a slightly bigger question than I imagined. Um, <laughs> I think in some ways, fashion was far more exciting. It was far more central play. When I started, we'd come out of that hippie period. Um, fashion in the 70s just really took off. So every season was fresh and exciting, um, from miniskirt to maxi skirt to big shoulders, small shoulders. It was center stage with music. And I was lucky enough to be young enough then to be right at the start of a really exciting journey. I think if you look at it now, it's... Um, much more compartmentalized. It's a part of our lives, but it's not the all and everything. And we've got far bigger issues like the world, what's happening to us and so on. And, and it seems it's, it's found its place, but it's not as important as it was. So, Roger, what I'd love, if it's okay, is for you to take us on a bit of a journey from the very start of Mulberry and where it was conceived and what the dream was, and then take us through a little bit of a you know, when you go on that journey of see the history of man and they go from Neanderthals all the way up to straight erect human beings, I would love a bit of a journey like that of Mulberry and take as much time as you'd like. OK, I'm not quite sure I haven't gone back to Neanderthal, actually. But anyway, <laughs> starting from the beginning. Um, so I started as a schoolboy collecting Victorian military uniforms. We used to wear them, Sergeant Pepper, Beatles, that sort of stage. And I'd come up to London on a sort of day off if I could get away from school in Bath and I would sell them in Portobello Market and so it was that thing of enjoying buying and selling and being involved with something you love so I think for me always all the way through everything I've done I've been involved in business wise I've really enjoyed the ride so started with that went up to London got went to a man called John Michael who was the Carnaby Street guru at the time and said John could I possibly be your business studies trainee. And he said, what's that? Here, make the coffee, clear the stationery cupboard out. And oh, job number three, you can go and buy accessories in, in one of my shops. So that was the beginning of a very exciting London at the time. And so I was buying belts off hippies who were coming on the street saying, hey, man, I've got some belts. Do you want to buy them? We were making huge profits. And I thought, this is crazy. I could do better than this. So I went to my father who was working for Clark Shoes down here in Somerset and said, dad, dad, where can I get some leather? And he said, well, go down to Bermondsey Market and, and, and down there, all the leather tanners and factors. And I found amazing snakeskins in myriads of colors and um, brass buckles and leather. And the first thing I made were snakeskin chokers. Now, Robert Choker then in those days, something went round your neck like that and had a little butterfly on it. And I sold them to all the top shops at the time. And it was literally, I made them on my kitchen table with my girlfriend at the time with the old Singer sewing machine. And that was the beginning of thinking, God, this is incredible, this world of design and fashion. Could I actually make a career out of it? So I went to my parents and said, would you come in? It's 21st birthday. Would you put some money in and help me? And dad said, I can't because I'm obviously with the clerks. Mum said, well, yeah, I'll come in. And she'd been a powerful army officer in the war and a PA to top 
um, London companies. So she became the half of the business, enabled me to design, travel the world, sell, market, live in London, come down to Somerset and start with one person making, two people making. And so she was the one that held it all together where your link with your mother is one where you can stretch it to the end. And probably if you have a huge row, you're not going to walk away from each other. You're going to stay in together. So I was a positive. She was a negative, And off we went. She held me back. I would race forward. And I started out by going out and, and selling to the top boutiques in London. Same time, I'd take my designs and all belts them with handbags of today. I'd take them to the top magazines like Vogue and Flair and whoever it was at the time and effectively sell to the girls, the PR editor girls at the same time as I might then go to a boutique and say, how do you love my belts? And if they featured in Vogue, then they'd buy them. So it was that, that marketing first step was a key. So my next product was handbags. That was like trying to make a house from a belt, which was a relatively straightforward thing to make a, a handbag stretched in every direction and trying to make a quality handbag was a bit of a nightmare, but we managed it. And again, my dad in the background was incredible because he would have a professional leather, somebody in Clark's who could say, look, let's ring him up and just find out how do we do this? Uh, we actually cooked enamel buckles in my mother's oven. We did all sorts of weird things like that. Um, first time as an accessory designer, you were sort of a bit junior in those days. A ready-to-wear designer was the real deal. As an accessory designer, I felt a little bit sort of, I'm not quite recognized. So um, I would um, buy these shirts, competing with the Nigerian army, buy them by the thousand, cut the tails off, turn them into pockets, put a leather collar on. And yeah, and that was the first jacket. So like a blouson casual jacket. And that became an incredible success, sold it all the way around the world. And then I did a whole hunting, shooting, fishing, casual style collection with it. And that was really the making of Mulberry with me selling all around the world um, from Japan to the States. And we'd go out and do exhibitions in different parts of the world and sell the collection, then start agents selling for us. And then the very first shops came in the early 80s. We did a shop in Place de Victoire in Paris, which was the sort of center of the fashion world. Then we opened in St. Christmas Place in London just open shops because we couldn't afford to because you'd suddenly title your cash flow up in one shop or two shops we then went on to do the next one which was franchises so then we went from doing those sort of first shops into franchise shops and opened up the idea of doing a designer franchise shop all around the world and we opened up in sweden in denmark in japan in holland so from those first shops, that really took us off. So it, it converted us talking to sort of very few people in far off places through other people's boutiques or shops to the Mulberry shop was then there. And our sales in Sweden, our first shop there went from being, I don't know, 100,000 to a million within about a year. So incredible growth and success. So beyond that, we then went from doing those shops to what were the key products? So by now we had a raised wear collection. We had all our accessories. We had men's, we had ladies, we had sunglasses, my glasses you saw earlier. Um, and that was really flying. But the next step, every now and then, because we were selling around the world with 80% export, um, Queen's Awards for export three times, we found that currency was a major, major problem as it is for everybody up and down. Throughout. And we were selling then in French francs or German Deutschmarks before the euro. 
And that meant we had to have a currency conversion. We had to take the risk of, of selling that product and getting it delivered to the shop somewhere in Germany. And that might take three weeks rather than two days today. And so getting that business to work effectively and forward selling currency and experiencing it, the biggest problem as an exporter was that those currencies went up and down like yo-yos and we had to forward sell and cover that risk. Um, 79, we had an incredible world recession. We lost the entire American market overnight. Um, 1989-90, Gulf War arrived and we lost the entire European market. Um, nobody was traveling, nobody from the Middle East, nobody from America. So those sort of experiences you had to cope with en route. And we went from then saying, okay, everybody was staying at home, not going to res restaurants. And that's when I came up with the idea of Mulberry Home, which was taking that Mulberry look and putting it into beds, glasses, tables, chairs, and creating a very generous English look with modernity, but also with that reference to the past. And from that, we then raced out of that recession in 1990 with the Gulf War, and fashion had got a bit tired at that stage and had gone a bit sort of crazy. There was punk rock, 60-year-old fashion, fashion um, press ladies that really shouldn't have been wearing it. And, and if you like, it reached a sort of full stop. So we decided Mulberry Home was the next route. And that's just as the total interest came back to the home and home design. And we shot off through the 90s with that collection. And then mid-90s, I did the Mulberry Hotel because I thought, well, how am I going to sell this? People can come and actually live the dream and stay in the hotel. Same year, we got a Michelin star for our restaurant in the first year, which was sort of unheard of. And we didn't really set out to do that, but we got it anyway. Um, and that really piqued my interest in, in the food side of the world as well. So realizing I've got a great looking hotel, now I had a Michelin star. Now I had to sustain really good food at a high level. Um, and that probably brought me fairly well on to the next stage, which was buying the farm around my house. So in the early 2000s, as I came out of Mulberry, I had this opportunity for the first time for 100 years to buy all the land around the house. So it was a thousand year old estate that had been here forever, Deer Park. Um, so I restored it with the money I came out of Mulberry and set off to try and create a new business, which was Sharpen Park. And I happened upon growing spelt. So my sister had cancer, sadly, and was struggling with diet, and I was going to plant wheat. And she said, well, why don't you grow spelt? And I hadn't a clue what that was. Went on the internet and found about, I suppose, about seven entries for spelt and wonderful little nuggets, which as a sort of marketing man from my Mulberry career, was always looking for those design ideas to pick up and take forward. And the key one was great for the mind, great for the body, great for the soul from St. Hildegard von Bingen in 1100. So it's fairly rare that you get somebody who says a thousand years ago, this is a great product and it still is today. So we headed off and tried to find what you could make out of spelt and could we grow it? I bought seed in Germany, Italy and France, planted it, tried it and could find very few products in the market. But one I did find was a Terence stamp bread in London and square, small, if you threw it at the wall, it would make a hole. So it was sort of thinking, Christ, is this really going to be a good product? And it turned out that it was a good product. And that's the basis of, of the business we created today, where we farm, we mill, um, we do it all organically. 
and we now bring it to the market um, through different supermarkets and, and independent stores, restaurants, and so on. So in a sense, en route, we've done the hotel, we've done Kilvercourt Designer Village down Somerset, where we've taken the headquarters of Mulberry that I own back into out of that successful Mulberry factory shop in doing 3 million turnover back in 2003 as I came out into a designer village with 30 or 40 brands, gardens, nursery, um, a real destination shopping thing, which I think is really what you need to be in today if you're not on internet sales. So we've sort of gone from um, being an accessory designer to a fashion designer, to a hotelier, to a spa creator, restaurateur, farmer, food producer, drinks, and the latest thing I'm just doing now is launching a plant-based spelt Sharp and Park drink. So that's our latest. So I think time for you to ask me another question, Rob. <laughs> no, I'm really enjoying this. It's fascinating how you've evolved and managed to embrace new markets and stay relevant. And it's not easy to do that over many decades. So I was going to ask this question, which I think you part covered, but I'd like to ask it again because you may have some other insights. And then I'm going to come into all these diverse models that you've created. But what opportunities do you see in fashion right now? This is the Opportunity Summit. We're talking to our amazing audience around the world about seizing and spotting opportunities. So what opportunities do you see in fashion right now? Well, I think, as I mentioned to you earlier, fashion to me, it sort of reached a bit of a point where it was almost twirling at the minute. And it wasn't particularly, as we went into COVID, it wasn't particularly grasping anything particularly strongly. It was repeating 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, whatever. So my feeling was it's a little bit irrelevant as, as really stretching into new places. However, we have never been through such a fundamental change from we all have to wear a suit or a tie or whatever our t-shirt or no, no collar, no tie, whatever it is. On the men's side, that is just gone. If you then go onto the ladies' side, and you're thinking, I'm, I'm going to party, I'm going out high heels, I've got short skirts, I've got shimmery dresses or whatever it is, that has gone. So leisure has become, and how you, what you wear around the house and so on has become, so I guess you go back to track pants, joggers, all those things. Now, that's been the absolute must, casual, easy leisure, probably where you can carry the bits around with you you need. So you don't need to carry a handbag around the house. You certainly don't need to carry it around the farm. So what would you be using now as a lady to, is it a bum bag? You know, what would be those accessories that you would need at the moment in your new life? But then your new life's going to change again, isn't it? And fashion always is very good at translating what's going to happen next. And that's what we're supposed to be there for as fashion designers. So I think we're going to see some excitement, but I think equally we're going to see that, I don't know, I don't think fashion is going to have quite the same relevance, Rob. I think we're going to be much more interested in how we preserve our planet, how we eat. So to me, as I came out of fashion, food was the new fashion. And I think there are going to be a lot of other things that we're using and living in life. I mean, I don't know how many people have bought a pizza oven and are now pizza experts, but there are going to be a lot of things that are a very different center of focus for us. So I think clothing will find a new form, clothing and accessories to be very much part of our lives, but it won't be as central as it was. There will be other things that are much more important. 
And Roger, is that why you evolved from clothing to home to hotel, food, etc.? Or was that because you had a real passion for those things? So did you spot an opportunity in a market and seize it? Was it because they were passions and interests? Or was there another reason for evolving? And because a lot of people in business say, just stay in your lane. And you've gone across the whole motorway and the central reservation and the hard shoulder. Yeah, I've been off the hard shoulder a few times as well. Um, <laughs> I, I guess the uh, it's inevitably the world you're in, isn't it? So if you think as a fashion designer and entrepreneur, I would be traveling the world for probably six months of the year. I'd be staying in interesting hotels. I'd want to find somewhere special. Food was always a fascination for me. So finding great restaurants. I actually created something. I don't know if you remember, there was a Mulberry Filofax and a Mulberry Planner that I did back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And we sold those all over the world as a sort of magic product. And in the front of it, I created something called the Buona Forchetta. And the Buona Forchetta means good fork in Italian. And that was my restaurant guide. And I would literally every season choose my favorite hotels around the world and all of my team around the world as well would do that and we'd have the armani team whoever it was would have at the front of their planner and we'd get phone calls saying roger what do you think of that uh, restaurant you put down in in japan that tokyo restaurant is that one to really go for um and so it gave us a reach through that wonderful getter and the planner out to that wider audience and in a sense what that meant for me my interest in hotels was big. My interest in res restaurants was big. And I was able to reach out to my audience by crossing over product areas. So when we did Mulberry Home, we were talking to the same audience. So going back to that motorway, um, all of my financial directors in time would have said, Roger, will you please keep on the central bit of the motorway and not verge off to the left and right? And I suppose what, as an entrepreneur, effectively, what you've got to try and do is make sure that the the key products, let's take the Mulberry Planner, that's the one that's going to sustain your margin, your volume, and your main business. But you've got to keep reinventing yourself. So you've got to come up with ideas that will take you forward. So when paper um, and the Mulberry Planner and the Buona Forchetta Guide were getting a little bit tired and people weren't writing notes and suddenly you had the Zion 5 or the Palm Pilot, we did cases for those. And that meant to all the city guys in London, they were just clamoring for those products. So that that has to, you have to be prepared to turn right, just as it seems like you're really doing well. You've got to be prepared to move into a different area or a different product. Now, sometimes those are just going to give you the PR and the noise. Other times they're going to make you the money. And, and that's, I think, the key aspect. You've never got, you must never be content with where you are. You've always got to be thinking, what am I going to do next to keep that interest alive from your consumer? At the same time, though, not deserting the fact they love what you already do. What you've got to avoid them doing is becoming bored with you. Thank you, Roger. So how do you spot opportunities? You've spotted many. How do you spot them? Do you have a, a, an insight you can share with us on a little radar that Roger has that maybe some of the other people in your organisation didn't have? I suppose number one has always been I've been in the front end of whatever's been happening in fashion or food. And you're, you're taught, you've got references, haven't you? It's a bit like you go to a library and you find things you might have gone to a library once upon a time. So today you're watching the people you believe in. You're watching 
the shops who you think are at the forefront, the brands, the designers, the individuals who are playing the best game in the territory. That doesn't mean to say you want to copy them, but you just want to know what they're doing. You want to know what's going on. Um, we've just designed this new plant-based spelt drink, and we, as we looked at building it, it's taken us about two years to do, we really studied what Oatly were doing, what Plenish were doing, what the other competition were doing, what they were doing well, what they were doing badly. How could we come into the market and create something that was different? Um, so I think it's, what is it? I suppose, number one, it's a fascination for creation, fascination for bringing something to the market that could infuse you. Um, but number two is you've got to know, can I make money out of it? You know, is this going to be a product that can make serious margin? Um, we, funnily enough, before we met you, we were having a, a look at our biscuit range uh, that we're just about to launch. And the team, they are the most delicious biscuits that we've ever made. And they were trying to hit a $2.99 price point with it um, in, in, let's say, a Waitrose or something like that. And I said, how's the margin? Oh, well, it's a little bit small. It's not quite where we'd like to be. And I said, well, why are we doing this biscuit? Um, what's the reason? If we can't make money, oh, well, it, it's delicious. No, not good enough. Either sell it for more or chuck it out of the range. So those are the things you learn all the time that ultimately, however much you dream to do it, the product has to have a reason. It has to be a window dressing that's going to bring people into the shop, so to speak, or it's going to be the main margin provider. There's room for both, but they have to have their position and not try and make the window dresser sell a million, but only give you a pound. Thank you, Roger. And then the follow-up question to this You've spotted the opportunity. You're going to execute it. How do you then seize it? How do you make things happen? How do you turn an idea into income? You know, turn a creation into a success? Well, firstly, let's assume here you know your marketplace and you are not, well, I suppose in my case, I've entered a few off the highways, haven't I? Um, <laughs> But you've got to assume that actually you do know your consumer that you're talking to. Um, and so your idea is there. The ideas come together. Firstly, some very basic things. You've got to know how to manufacture it. You've got to know, can you sustain that manufacturing? You've got to know if it's you're bringing it in from Europe or the Far East, is your currency going to stay constant? Can you, can you make sure you can bring that product to market at the right price. So let's assume you've done those bits of work. Now, is this product a short-term product? How are you going to make that opportunity stay? So marketing, what is the marketing tool? How are you going to bring this product to your consumer? In some ways, when I started, life was quite easy. I could have gone to those Vogue girls and said, hi, girls, do you like my belts? You know, and would you feature them? They'd feature them. I go and see my boutique and wherever it is, and they buy them. So I've, I've created and I've sustained a route to market. Um, in the last three years, we've moved from influencers. So if I go back to the 90s, um, how do I make this opportunity to come? Men's, we did a men's suit collection, bespoke men's, sort of, a sort of ready-to-made bespoke. You could come in the store, you'll be wearing your wonderful jacket, say, Roger, can you make a jacket with studs on the other side? And I, I've drop my shoulder a bit and I want to just get it right. So we would make that suit. We'd have it, would measure up, make the suit and have it back to you within three weeks, making it Italy, bringing it back into Bond Street. Great idea, priced right, manufactured right. I needed you to walk in off the street 
from Bond Street. Why would you do that if we didn't normally sell bespoke suits? So how was I going to make this thing happen? Well, interestingly, Bob Geldof at that moment walked into our store and I got a call down in Somerset from the PR and said, Bob wants a suit. And so I said, yeah, great, fantastic. And she said, no, no, you don't understand, Roger. Bob wants to be given a suit. And I said, okay. And Bob's saying he's going to be on the front page of the Irish Times tomorrow with the Irish Prime Minister wearing that suit tomorrow. I said, really? Yep. I said, give him the suit now. And it was a three-piece Irish Donegal suit made as if it were for you, made for Bob. Off he went. It wasn't the next day, but within a week, Bob appears on the front page. And Bob, before that, had looked like a ragamuffin in terms of his dress. Now, Bob had huge style. And that picture and many more of them, a Bob became a good friend, actually went around the world. Our bespoke suits suddenly became famous. So the opportunity being created by creating a marketing opportunity, which happened. I didn't invite Bob into the shop, but we managed to engineer that into something that worked. Another one was Giselle Bunchen. We had a Mulberry handbag. She walked off the end of the catwalk in New York. We had Chris Moore, the photographer, clutching the handbag. And he, sorry, she was clutching the handbag and said, I want this handbag. That got into vogue and that became the it bag. So that was an engineering exercise. So it's taking whatever means through influencers, through famous people, through social media today, but much harder today, I would say, because you haven't got, the high street is devastated. You haven't got the boutiques and the John Lewis's everywhere to present your product. Um, this younger generation is not reading newspapers. It's not sitting, looking at Vogue magazine the way that it might've happened 10 years ago. So to reach that market, it is all about your Instagram or whatever it is. And how do you make sure you're talking? So that's a very different skill set. Um, quite a technical skill set, which all of us are reliant on having a good team to give us. So I think opportunity always is about knowing where your consumer is, finding out how you're going to reach them, but making sure you're giving them something they just can't resist. Thank you, Roger. So I know you started Mulberry a little while ago, and I know that you exited Mulberry at a certain stage. So could you tell us when you started it? and what you grew it from and to, and you could, you know, whether it's turnover and stuff, just to put it into um, perspective for everyone listening. And then when you exited, why you did, and then what's your perception of where the brand has gone after your exit? And maybe, cause we're gonna do a quick fire round at the end. So maybe take two or three minutes to answer this one. Okay, well started in 71, um, grew it when I left in 2003, four to, probably at retail price, maybe 100 million turnover. Um, And during that journey, probably had 500 people working for me around the world, manufacturing through the retail. Um, Had some fabulous teams, really enjoyed relationships all over the world with both customers and and staff. Um, Had some very, very tough times on the way through. I describe myself a bit like a submarine in that you spend most of your life underwater. briefly coming up for air, that means briefly coming up to make a lot of money and then disappearing down again to spend it and try and get to the next stage. Uh, (laughs) So you have to be resilient if you want to be an entrepreneur and and survive, because as soon as you've made a great success at any point, there is bound to be something around the corner, be it COVID or anything else that comes down to knock you down and 
then you have to reinvent or whatever. Um, so we went through the stages of manufacturing, manufacturing in the UK, um, 96, for example, we'd gone on the stock market, um, launched on AIM, had a huge success. We'd financed our previous five years. We'd hit the Gulf War recession 90, 1990. We'd had to bring in venture capitalists and sold 25% of the company. Suddenly find ourselves with um, four or five million came in and that came in at 30% interest rate per annum. And that was on what were called deeply discounted loan notes that then rolled up each year. So we didn't pay anything, seemed wonderful. Um, but after five years, we suddenly realized that we owed them probably, I don't know, 15 million. <laughs> so suddenly, whoa, what are we going to do here? Luckily for us, the AIM stock market appeared and our advisors said, I think your best route is to take them out on the AIM stock market, which we did. We had a fantastic launch. Remember, the Times headline was Saul brings color to the market. And that was great, but we only sold them out. We didn't bring any more money in, which was foolish. We should have bought more capital in for our next thing. And then within six months of going on the stock market, um, Gordon Brown gave control of sterling to the Bank of England based on inflation. The pound went super high and stayed there until the Brexit talks. So for the first time forever in my Mulberry career, the pound stayed high. And as an exporter, that was a disaster because it meant we were selling in euros or dollars. So suddenly we, we literally lost 30% of our turnover, not our profit, on exchange currency. So at that stage, we had to move a huge chunk of our manufacturing overseas, not knowing whether it would come back or not. So the vagaries of currency remain for an exporter, a manufacturer, or somebody who wishes to buy and sell internationally. They remain very difficult and very volatile. And the percentages up and down can often be much more than your net profit sits there. So exciting, but dangerous. So at that stage, we moved manufacturing to China, to Turkey, moved about 50%, kept our UK manufacturing there. And at that point, we then lost. We went from making millions to losing millions, literally overnight, purely on currency. We fought our way back, got back out of it. Our bankers said, ah, oh, well done. Now, you've got to go and bring in some external capital. So we had to go out again, and we brought in a lady called Christina Ong, highly successful international Singaporean businesswoman, who bought 40% of the company. And we thought we'd done an amazing deal. This time we bought in $8 million, I think it was. And a secondary deal was to do a 50-50 joint venture in the States, which would bring us in another $15 million. So I thought, well, look, the worst that's going to happen is that I'm going to get, lose control of this business now. But I would have taken it into the serious global power play, which were the Louis Vuittons and so on, Prada, et cetera. And I had done, but I hadn't quite reckoned for the fact that that wasn't quite her idea. Her idea was probably that if she could get me out early, she could then do that, but do that without me. So <laughs> I hadn't quite got the plan fully thought through. Um, that became obvious fairly quickly. We, we fought a, a battle over a few years to try and resolve it. She refused to do America until she got me out. Um, and long story short, I had a bitter battle for a couple of years and I came out on my ear um, pretty fast. And that was brutal, tough. But on the other hand, Rob, I would never have done and had the amazing life I've had since. And I've never been pointed out of fashion, charging around the world, staying in amazing hotels, a minute here, a minute there, just spinning around the world. 
and actually probably not creating anything particularly special or new, but just doing um, what I had done 20 times over in the previous 30 years. Now I was thrust out, suddenly had this farm that had come up for sale around me, suddenly had the headquarters that I created through Mulberry and did two things, created Sharpen Park, the food business and the farming business, understood sustainability was going to be a vital part of future as I went into organic farming. And then we did the designer out village where we were taking your designer favorites and bringing them to you in a market just as Somerset as a county and as an area took off. So we'd got our timing right again and off we went again. So I think, does that cover pretty much everything? That's absolutely brilliant. I, I wish I had another hour, but we have my uh, friend and amazing um, moonshot thinker Naveen Jane in the, in the wings. So we're going to do a quick fire round now, um, Roger. And if you don't mind answering in maybe one sentence, just for a bit of fun here. Uh, uh, so the first thing is, my favourite designer and probably one of my favourite humans ever is Alexander McQueen. Who is your favourite? Um, well, I would have to be not very arrogant. That would be far too arrogant. No, not me. Um, it would <laughs> be, I think it would probably be for sort of duration would be Armani. I know it's Italian, but I think probably he has sustained great style through time. Mm. Okay, right, Roger. This is going to be a tough one for you, I think, because I know you have a penchant passion for cars, but there is a gun to your head. And if you had to choose only one, would you choose fashion or cars? Cars. <laughs> All right, then maybe you can expand on this one. So would you choose electric cars or petrol cars and why? Okay, well, very fast history. Um, 10 years ago, Prince Charles asked me to put on an event on Pall Mall and bring together the best electric cars from all around the world. And we did a race to get there from Birmingham, where Prince Charles was in the chip fat fuel train doing a, a UK sustainability tour. And Kevin McLeod and I had two Teslas and we raced Prince Charles to Pall Mall. Um, Kevin on the motorways, me on the A-roads. And we had the BBC on board with us. And that was the beginning of me understanding that electric cars were going to be the future. And so we then put a whole, the best of all electric cars to get on the mall. And we knew then back in 2009, this was, that electric cars would be the future. Um, I've now got an electric mini, um, buzz around everywhere. And I wish it would go a little bit further, but actually with COVID, it hasn't needed to go too far. So that's been okay. So is, are you choosing electric then? Oh, without question. Yeah, I mean, petrol is, is dead. That doesn't alter the fact that my passion through life has been racing historic single-seater racing cars. Um, but I had to put that down about 10 years ago because I could just see that AI was going faster and faster and sooner or later would probably kill myself. But on the other side, um, how could I justify a mile a gallon when I could see that electric cars and sustainability were the future. And I could just see the headlines coming as fast as the car. Roger, you are just kidding us. You know, how can you do it, both these things and talk about sustainability? Mm. Okay. So final question and one sentence answer, Roger. And this is going to be a difficult one. And this, this is loaded a bit. Traditional education or self-education and why? Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to have to vacillate on that one. Um, 
obviously I had a traditional education, but I was allowed to do an awful lot of things I shouldn't. So I was just at a public school where I was a boarder, but actually we were able to get away with everything. And I did. And so I think that suggests self-education. All right. Roger, this has been so much fun. I love listening to you. I feel like we only just got started. Um, where can we follow you? Are you active on any social media channels so we can follow your story some more? Yeah, I'm, what am I? I'm Roger at Souls biz i'm on instagram you'll find me somehow if you put roger j saul i think rather than roger saul um sharp and park simile uh we've got a website here so you can see what we're doing um kilver court that's k-i-l-v-e-r court designer village so all of those things my twitter is pathetically small in fact <laughs> i'm not really using it much at all now but um instagram i think because i love image and i think instagram probably is the best route for image Roger, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Rob, it's been a pleasure too. And I'm just sorry I kept coming and going. We Bye did for it. Now. We did it. We did it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hey, it's Rob again. And I need to own up to something. Entrepreneurs don't celebrate enough. I bet you don't. I know I don't. And we went through the five-year anniversary of the Disruptive Entrepreneur, which is a massive achievement. And the 600th episode, which again, how many podcasts have done 600 episodes? And we didn't even celebrate. So I want to celebrate the 600th episode and the five-year anniversary with you. We have something new and special that I think you're going to love. Now, many of you who listen, you're on my Facebook supporter program. You get 10 pieces of content with me as a bonus over and above what the general public get. We have supporter-only meetups, socials, dinners. I do Ask Me Anythings every sort of two weeks or so live. We do Make Cash and social media challenges. You get discounts, you get to come to events and you get premium ticket upgrades and so much more. But what I've done to celebrate the five-year anniversary, the 600th episode, is actually created a decentralized platform called Rob.team. Many of you don't use Facebook. We're in a, a more modern, decentralized age now. So if you go right now to rob.team, www.rob.team, you can join my supporter and rob.team program. You can choose whether you enroll on Facebook or the non-native decentralized platform that I've built specially for you. And for just five pounds or $5 a month, cancel any time. You get 10 premium pieces of content from me you don't get anywhere else, deep dive content. You get supporter and team only meetups, socials and dinners throughout the year. A two weekly Ask Me Anything live that I don't do in any public situation anymore. We do seven day challenges about five times a year. Make cash challenges, social media challenges. You get premium ticket upgrades, special discounts. I have um, three Facebook account managers. We often have Zoom meetings with them and then we update you sort of from the horse's mouth live um, what they shared with us. Um, whenever we do events and webinars, we never do replays or recordings. But as a supporter and team member, you get those free. You get an extra 10% discount off any of my trainings. And get this, if you're one of the first 60, I can't do 600, you'll see why. Then I'm actually going to do a 15-minute one-to-one personal call with you. And if you're one of the first 256, I've just set up a brand new Rob.team uh, WhatsApp group where you'll get my mobile number and you know, we can share strategies and tactics together. So go right now to www.rob.team. That's www.rob.team. First 50, 
get a 15 minute one to one call with me. Um, I'm going to do that after your first month subscription. And, I, you know, it's going to take me a bit of time to do that, but I'll do it. I'll, I'm a man of my word. And the first 256, you get into the Rob.team supporters only WhatsApp group. There's loads of bonuses in there. This program has been running for two years. My six-stage, seven-figure launch formula, which was a paid-for course, it's in there. How to write a best-selling book course is in there. PAVA and social media manager and brand manager documents and job descriptions are in there. Marketing KPIs documents are in there. How to dramatically increase your fees. The book I'm writing, the up-to-date version is in there. There's so much content. It's only £5 or $5 a month. Uh, and I'm adding this new platform, Rob.team, to celebrate the 5th year anniversary and the 600 episodes. And first 60, 15-minute one-to-one call with me, first 256, get into the um, exclusive WhatsApp group. So be quick, go now, because we have millions of subscribers and downloads and views a week now for the Disruptive Entrepreneur Show across all platforms. So see you there at www.rob.team. Go now. <laughs>